Chapter 6 The Myth of Financial Expertise Why Professional Wine Tasters and Stock Pickers Are Clueless and How You Can Beat Them If I invited you to a blind taste test of a $12 wine versus a $1,200 wine, could you tell the difference? In 2001, Frederick Brochet, a researcher at the University of Bordeaux, ran a study that sent shockwaves through the wine industry. Determined to understand how wine drinkers decided which wines they liked, he invited 57 recognized experts to evaluate two wines, one red, one white. After tasting the two wines, the experts described the red wine as intense, deep, and spicy, words commonly used to describe red wines. The white was described in equally standard terms, lively, fresh, and floral. But what none of these experts knew was that the two wines were exactly the same wine. Even more damning, the wines were actually both white wine. The red wine had been tinted with food coloring. Just think about this for a second. 57 wine experts couldn't even tell they were drinking two identical wines. There's something we need to talk about when it comes to experts. Americans love experts. We feel comforted when we see a tall, uniformed pilot behind the controls of a plane. We trust our doctors to prescribe the right medications. And we're confident that our lawyers will steer us through legal tangles. Of course, we love to devour the words of talking heads in the media. We're taught that experts deserve to be compensated for their training and experience. After all, we wouldn't hire someone off the street to build a house or remove our wisdom teeth, would we? All our lives, we've been taught to defer to experts, teachers, doctors, investment professionals. But ultimately, expertise is about results. You can have the fanciest degrees from the fanciest schools, but if you can't perform what you were hired to do, your expertise is meaningless. In our culture of worshiping experts, what have the results been? Well, when it comes to finances in America, they're pretty dismal. We've earned failing grades in financial literacy. Recent results show that high school students answered only 61% of questions correctly on the National Financial Literacy Test, while basic college students answered 69% right. Keep in mind, this is basic financial literacy. We think investing is about guessing the next best stock. It's not. And instead of enriching ourselves by saving and investing, most American households are in debt. Something is not right here. Now, when it comes to investing, I get it. It's easy to get overwhelmed by all the options. Small cap, mid cap, large cap stocks, REITs, bonds, growth value, blend funds, not to mention factoring in expense ratios, interest rates, allocation goals, and, of course, diversification. That's why so many people say, can't I just hire someone to do this for me? This is a maddening question for me because, in fact, financial experts are often no better at the job than amateurs. In fact, they're often worse. The vast majority of people, including you, can earn more than those so-called experts by investing on your own. No financial advisor, no fund manager, just automatic investments in low-cost funds, which I'll get into in the next chapter. So for the average investor, the value of financial expertise is a myth. 
There are several reasons for this that I will detail for you, but I urge you to think about how you treat the experts in your life. Do they deserve to be put on a pedestal? Do they deserve tens of thousands of your dollars in fees? If so, what kind of performance do you demand of them? I want to tell you a quick story about one of my students who went through a boot camp that I was offering on my website. He was a middle-aged man, he'd been investing with a financial advisor, and he was paying 1% in fees. Now, when I told him, oh boy, 1%, we're going to talk about that, he was confident that he was paying for expertise. But as I showed him some numbers through an investment calculator, he realized something and he truly internalized it. This 1% in fees that he was paying would end up costing him 28% of his returns. The math is not intuitive, but as I walked him through an investment calculator, he realized if he changed nothing, he would pay $158,000 to this advisor. For what? For mediocre advice that he could actually outperform himself. A 1% fee can equal a 28% reduction in your returns. That's money out of your pocket. In truth, being rich is within your control, not some experts. How rich you are depends on the amount you're able to save and on your investment plan. Acknowledging this fact takes a lot of guts because it means admitting that there's no one else to blame if you're not rich. No advisors, no complicated investment strategy, no market conditions. But it also means that you can control exactly what happens to you and your money over the long term. You know what the most fun part of this book is for me? No, it's not the personal finance chance that I constantly wish I got when I was walking outside. Let's hear it for A-S-S-E-T-A-L-L-O-C-A-T-I-O-N. It's not that. It's the disbelieving emails I've gotten after people have listened to this chapter. Whenever I point out how people waste their money by investing in expensive mutual funds or by relying on a financial advisor who generates below market returns, I get tons of emails that basically say the same thing. Ramit, you're full of it. Or there's no way that's true. Just look at my investment returns, not understanding how much they've made after factoring in taxes and fees. But surely they must be making great returns because they wouldn't continue investing if they weren't making lots of money, right? In this chapter, I'm going to show you how you can outperform the financial pundits by sidestepping their expertise and their fees and taking a simple approach to investing. It's not easy to admit that reliance on these so-called experts is largely ineffective, but stick with me. I've got the data to back it up, and I'll show you how to invest on your own. Experts can't guess where the market is going. Before we move on to discuss how you can beat the experts, let's look a little more deeply into how they operate and why their advice so often misses the mark. The most visible financial experts are pundits and portfolio managers, the people who choose specific stocks in mutual funds. They love to regale us with their predictions about where the market's going, up, down, they go on and on about interest rates and oil production and a butterfly flapping its wings in China and how it's going to affect the stock market. This forecasting is called timing the market. But the truth is, they simply cannot predict how high, how low, or even in which direction the market will go. I get emails from people wondering what I think about the energy sector, 
cryptocurrency markets or Google. Who knows? I don't, especially in the short term, and neither does anyone else. Unfortunately, the fact is nobody can predict where the market is going. Still, the talking heads on TV love it. They love to make grandiose predictions each day. And whether they're right or wrong, they're never held accountable for them. The media feeds off every little market fluctuation. One day, the pundits spread gloom and doom about a multi-hundred point loss in the market. Then, three days later, the front page is filled with images of hope and unicorns as the market climbs 500 points. Well, it is riveting to watch, but just step back and ask yourself, am I actually learning anything from this? Or am I just being overwhelmed by information about the market going up one day and going down another? More information is not always good, especially when it's not actionable and when it causes you to make errors in your investing. The key takeaway here is to completely ignore any predictions that pundits make. They simply do not know what will happen in the future. Even though you think they'd know better, fund managers also fall prey to financial hype. You can see this in the trading patterns of funds themselves. Mutual funds turn over stocks frequently, meaning they buy and sell stocks a lot, incurring trading fees, and if held outside a tax-advantaged account, taxes for you. The managers chase the latest hot stock, confident of their abilities to spot something that millions of others have not. What's more, they also demand extraordinary compensation. And despite that, fund managers across the board still fail to beat the market 75% of the time. You might say, but Ramit, my fund is different. The manager returned 80% over the last two years. <laughs> well, that's great. But just because someone beat the market for a few years doesn't mean they'll beat the market next year. In fact, starting in 2000, S&P Dow Jones Indices did a 16-year study and found that the fund managers who beat their benchmarks one year had an extremely difficult time getting similar returns the next year. Ryan Poyer, senior analyst at S&P Dow Jones Indices, said, if you have an active manager who beats the index one year, the chance is less than a coin flip that the manager will beat the index again next year. Let me give you another example. If I asked you to name the best stock from 2008 to 2018, what would you guess? Some people might guess a company like Google. What if I told you the answer was Domino's Pizza? It's true. Now, back in January 2008, if you invested $1,000 in Google stock, 10 years, it would have been worth a little over $3,000. And tripling your money in 10 years is fantastic. But if you'd taken that same $1,000 and purchased Domino's stock, your investment would have gone up to almost $18,000. Here's the problem. Nobody can consistently guess which funds or which stocks will outperform the market. They can't even guess which stocks will match it. Anyone who claims they can is lying. So ignore the pundit's predictions. Ignore once-in-a-lifetime freakish results and ignore the last one or two years of a fund's performance. A fund manager might be able to perform really well over the short term, but over the long term, that manager will almost never beat the market because of expenses, fees, and the growing mathematical difficulty of picking stocks that continue to outperform. When you're evaluating a fund, the only way to really gauge it is by looking at its track record for the last 10 years or more and to factor in the costs. 
a startling example of how experts can't time the market. The media and its pundits know exactly how to get our attention. Flashy graphics, loud talking heads, and bold predictions about the market that almost never come true. These might be entertaining, but let's look at some actual data that's going to shock you. Putnam Investments studied the performance of the S&P 500 over 15 years, during which time the annualized return was 7.7%. They noted something amazing. During that 15-year period, if you missed the 10 best days of investing, those are the days where the stock market gained the most points, your return would have dropped from 7.7% to 2.96%. And if you missed the best 30 days, your returns would have dropped to negative 2.47%. Negative returns. In actual dollar values, if you'd invested $10,000 and kept your money in the market over those 15 years, you'd end up with $30,711. If you missed the 10 best investing days, you'd end up with $15,481. And if you missed the 30 best investing days, you'd end up with 6873 That's less than you began with. This math is startling. It makes you wonder about the certainty of friends and pundits who say it's obvious that the market is going down. Ignore them. It may feel good to try to predict where the market's going to go. But candidly, when it comes to investing and compound interest, your feelings will lead you astray. The only long-term solution is to invest regularly, putting as much money as possible into low-cost, diversified funds, even in an economic downturn. This is why long-term investors have a phrase they use. Focus on time in the market, not timing the market. How Financial Experts Hide Poor Performance As I've told you, the experts are often wrong. But you know what's even more irritating? They know how to cover their tracks, so we can't catch on to their failures. In fact, the entire financial industry is a lot sneakier than you'd imagine. One of the biggest tricks they use is to never admit they were wrong. Daniel Solon, author of the smartest investment book you'll ever read, describes a study that illustrates how financial ratings companies like Morningstar continue to give thumbs-up ratings even as the companies they purport to be evaluating crater and lose billions of dollars of shareholder value. Here's what the study found. 47 of the 50 advisory firms continued to advise investors to buy or hold shares in the companies up to the date the companies filed for bankruptcy. 12 of the 19 companies continued to receive buy or hold ratings on the actual date they filed for bankruptcy. Companies like Morningstar offer ratings of funds that are supposedly simple reflections of their value. But the idea of Morningstar's five-star ratings is actually complete nonsense. Why? Well, there's two reasons. First, receiving five golden stars doesn't actually predict success. A study by researchers Christopher Blake and Matthew Morey showed that although low-star ratings were on target in predicting poor-performing stocks, the high-star ratings were not accurate. They wrote, For the most part, there is little statistical evidence that Morningstar's highest-rated funds outperform the next-to-highest and median-rated fund. Just because a company assigns five shiny stars to a fund 
doesn't mean it's going to perform well in the future. Second, and this one is really sneaky, when it comes to fund ratings, companies use something called survivorship bias to obscure the picture of how well a company is doing. Survivorship bias exists because funds that fail are not included in any future studies of fund performance. Why? For the simple reason that they don't exist anymore. I'll give you an example. A company may start 100 funds, but only have 50 left a couple of years later. Now the company can simply trumpet how effective their 50 funds are. But guess what? They're ignoring the other 50 funds that failed. They just erased them from history. In other words, when you see these articles called Best 10 Funds, it's just as important to think about what you're not seeing. The funds that closed down and have vanished from anyone's website. Out of that pool of successful funds, of course there will be some five-star funds. Financial companies know very well about survivorship bias, but they care more about having a page full of funds with great performance numbers instead of revealing the actual truth. As a result, they've consciously created several ways to test funds quickly and only market the best performing ones, thus ensuring their reputation as the brand with the best funds. These tricks are especially insidious because you would never know to look out for them. For example, when you see a page full of funds with 15% returns, you naturally assume that they'll keep giving you 15% returns in the future. And it's even better if they have five-star ratings from a trusted company like Morningstar. But now that we know about survivorship bias and the fact that most ratings are meaningless, it's easy to see that financial experts and companies are just looking to fatten their wallets, not to ensure you get the best return for your money. Burton G. Malkiel, the author of A Random Walk Down Wall Street, wrote, A number of mutual fund management complexes employ the practice of starting incubator funds. A complex may start 10 small new equity funds with different in-house managers and wait to see which ones are successful. Suppose after a few years, only three funds produce total returns better than the broad market averages the complex begins to market those successful funds aggressively, dropping the other seven and burying their records. Three legendary investors who did beat the market. Now, there are indeed investors who have beaten the market consistently for years. Warren Buffett, for example, has produced a 20.9% annualized return over 53 years. Peter Lynch of Fidelity returned 29% over 13 years, and Yale's David Swenson has returned 13.5% over 33 years. They have phenomenal investing skills, and they've earned their titles as some of the best investors in the world. But just because these guys can consistently beat the market doesn't mean you or I can. Yes, theoretically, it is possible to consistently beat the market, which you'll recall returns about 8% after inflation, that's true in the same way that it's possible for me to become a heavyweight boxing champion. With millions of people around the globe trying to beat the market, statistically there are bound to be a few extreme outliers. Who knows whether their success is due to statistics or skill? But even the experts themselves agree that individual investors shouldn't expect to equal their returns. David Swenson, for example, has explained that he achieves outsized returns because of top-notch professional resources, but more important, 
access to investments that you or I will never have, such as the very best venture capital and hedge funds, which he uses to bolster his asset allocation. These professionals spend every waking hour studying investments, and they have access to proprietary information and deals. Mom-and-pop investors have no chance of competing with them. How to Engineer a Perfect Stock Picking Record Since we know it's almost impossible to beat the market over the long term, let's turn to probability and luck to explain why some funds seem irresistibly compelling. Although a fund manager might be lucky for one, two, or even three years, it's mathematically unlikely that he'll continue beating the market. To examine probability theory, let's take a simple example of an unscrupulous scammer who wants to sell his financial services to some naive investors. Here's what he does. He emails 10,000 people, telling half of them that stock A will go up and telling the other half that stock B will go up. And he tells him, this is just a freebie email to demonstrate my insider knowledge. After a couple of weeks, he notices that stock A has indeed gone up by chance. He now eliminates the stock B group and focuses on the stock A group, emailing them an I told you so note. This time, he splits the mailing in half again. 2,500 people are told about stock C and 2,500 people are told about stock D. If either C or D goes up on the next cycle, at least 1,250 people will have seen him pick two stocks successfully. And each cycle will make the recipients increasingly awed and dazzled by his ability. Because we like to create order where there is none, we will ascribe magical stock-picking abilities to this scammer, even though it was literally by chance. And guess what else we'll do? we will buy whatever investment success kit he's selling. The same is true of the pages of five-star funds you see. Moral of the story, don't trust purported financial expertise just because of a few impressive stats. I bet you don't need a financial advisor. You've heard my rants against the media hype surrounding investment and the poor performance of most professional investors. Now there's one more category of financial professionals that I want to warn you about, financial advisors. Now the natural tendency is to say, hey Ramit, I don't have time to invest. Why don't I just use a financial advisor? I know this old outsourcing argument. We outsource our car cleaning, our laundry, maybe our housekeeping. So why not the management of our money? Most young people do not need a financial advisor. We have such simple needs that if we just put a little bit of time in, a few hours a week over the course of, I don't know, let's say six weeks, we can get an automatic personal finance infrastructure working for us. Plus, financial advisors don't always look out for your interests. They're supposed to help you make the right decisions about your money, but keep in mind that they're actually not obligated to do what's best for you, at least the ones who are not what's called a fiduciary. Some of them will give you very good advice, but many of them are useless. If they're paid on commission, they'll usually direct you to expensive, bloated funds to earn their commissions. By contrast, fee-only financial advisors simply charge a flat fee and are much more reputable. Now, you should note that neither is necessarily better at providing good investment returns or your top line. They simply charge differently, which affects your bottom line. The key takeaway is that most people don't actually need a financial advisor. You can do it all on your own and come out ahead. 
But if your choice is between hiring a financial advisor or not investing at all, then sure, hire one. There are also some other categories of people who can benefit from a financial advisor. People with really complex financial situations, like those who are entrepreneurs, or those who have inherited or accumulated substantial amounts of money, like over a million or two dollars, and those who are truly too busy to learn about investing for themselves, could benefit from an advisor's help. I will say that it is better to pay a little and get started investing than to not start at all. So if you're determined to get professional help, you can begin your search at the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors. That's napfa.org. These advisors are fee-based, meaning they usually have an hourly rate, not commission-based, which means they want to help you, not profit off their recommendations. But I want you to remember this. Lots of people use financial advisors as a crutch and end up paying tens of thousands of dollars over their lifetime simply because they didn't want to spend a few hours learning about investing. If you don't learn to manage your money when you're young, you will cost yourself a ton one way or another, whether you do nothing or you pay someone exorbitant fees to manage your money. Dave Nelson, who's 40 years old, wrote, Oh, geez, I lucked into a one-time windfall, and I tried to do the smart thing by using a financial planner recommended by my bank. He put me in terrible funds that both underperformed the S&P and had insane fees, lost about 30% of my money, eventually moved everything to Vanguard index funds, and no regrets about the move. Nothing but regrets about the wasted time and money trusting a professional. Tom T., 35 years old, wrote, At my first job, my company offered seminars hosted by a former employee who was now doing investments. He gave pretty standard advice, like save in your 401k, use a Roth IRA, etc. I went for a consult and set up a Roth IRA with him. He also sold me on the investment advantages of whole life insurance policies. Then my wife looked at the details and said, um, nope. She called them to cancel everything and get our money back. We got almost everything back, which was good because initial outlays were almost five figures. Around that time, I got your book and moved my Roth from him to Vanguard. I haven't looked back since. My friend realizes his financial advisor has been taking him for a ride. Years ago, my friend Joe emailed me asking me to take a look at his investments. He suspected he was being taken for a ride by his financial advisor. Within five minutes of talking to him, I knew he was in trouble. Joe is a young entrepreneur with high earnings, so this advisor figured he was a meal ticket for the next four decades. I told him the following. There are certain keywords that are major red flags when it comes to investing, including whole life insurance, annuities, and Primerica. Any one of those words means, at best, you're almost certainly overpaying, and at worst, you're being scammed. I told him you're being overcharged, and with your income, the fees you pay will be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Or with his income, it would actually have been over a million dollars over his lifetime. And finally, I told him you should move everything to a low-cost broker. You'll pay lower fees, and you'll get better performance. Now, when you do this, your advisor is going to freak out and use every emotional tool in his arsenal to prevent you from doing it. Therefore, communicate in writing. <sighs> the show was about to begin. I sat back in my chair and rubbed my hands together. 
I live for this shit. Over the course of the next week, he and his advisor emailed back and forth. And predictably, the advisor was shocked, absolutely shocked, I tell you, that his client wanted out. Here are some of the exact words he used. I am shocked, especially since we have spoken several times in the last few months and I have not heard any complaints or concerns. Taking on a large task of doing all your own planning and investing doesn't seem like a good idea. My favorite was this. However, if you still feel that you would like to fire me, I can list out instructions to close your accounts. The most hilarious part was that my friend simply refused to get baited by all the emotional manipulation. He just calmly replied and said, I'm not confident that some of the decisions we made together were truly in my best interest. Whether the loss of confidence is justified or not, it'll be hard to have a professional relationship going forward with how I currently feel. I give Joe an absolute A+. Not only will he keep hundreds of thousands of dollars in fees, he's shown us what having a backbone with your own money looks like. If you're currently working with a financial advisor, I encourage you to ask them if they are a fiduciary. That is, if they're required to put your financial interests first. Joe's advisor was not a fiduciary. He was a salesman. That was instantly obvious to me by his recommendation that Joe, at that time a single man in his 20s, quote, invest in life insurance. The only reason for someone like Joe to have life insurance is if he had a dependent, not to fatten his advisor's wallet. If you discover that your advisor is not a fiduciary, you should switch. Don't be worried about the variety of emotional tactics and manipulation that they'll use to get you to stay. Keep your eyes on the prize and put your financial returns first. When two wealth managers tried to recruit me. A few years ago, a friend suggested I talk to a wealth manager. I declined, but he was insistent. Why not, my friend asked. Oh, I don't know, maybe because I wrote a New York Times best-selling book on investing in personal finance. <sighs> okay, I took a deep breath and reminded myself, be humble, Ramit. I decided to take the call. The friend told me that these advisors worked for a wealth management firm that I won't name. <laughs> who am I kidding? I'm going to tell you right now who they work for. They work for Wells Fargo Private Wealth Management. Let me digress for a moment and remind you why I hate Wells Fargo and Bank of America. These big banks are pieces of shit. They rip you off, charge near extortionate fees, and use deceptive practices to beat down the average consumer. No one will speak up against them because everyone in the financial world wants to cut a deal with them. Well, I have zero interest in deals with these banks. If you use them, don't. If you do, you're asking to be mistreated. You can just Google Ramit Best Accounts for the best checking accounts, savings accounts, and credit cards. I make no money from these recommendations. I just want you to avoid getting ripped off. Anyway, back to the story. When I heard these guys worked for Wells Fargo, <laughs> I knew I had to take the call, mostly because I hate almost all wealth managers and because I love role-playing. Now, quick background on what wealth managers do. They find a person with money, ask them a bunch of questions, and help them plan their finances and investments. Sounds good, right? They also give you prestige services, like portfolio analysis, international mortgage assistance, tax planning services, etc. In exchange for this, they charge you a fee based on percentage of assets, a small number, like 1% or 2%. Oh my God, the fees. We'll get to that in a minute. So I get on the phone with these two advisors. They work in Beverly Hills, and they have these amazing, 
buttery British accents. I love British accents. They know nothing about me. They didn't do even two seconds of research. So I'm sitting there telling myself, this is going to be the best call of my life. They ask me what I do for a living. I tell them internet entrepreneur. Oh, they tell me we work with entrepreneurs and celebrities. Celebrities are targets for wealth managers because number one, they make a lot of money. Number two, usually for only a short period of time. And number three, they don't know anything about money. They just want to delegate it. So these advisors start telling me about their services, how they help their clients focus on their work and handle all their financial stuff. The implication being that I'm too busy buying Lamborghinis and bottle service to pay attention to my investments. Little do they know, I love asset allocation and I actively study it for fun. They tell me how they keep my money safe, how they know that I need the money to be here for tomorrow, playing on my fear of loss. I play dumb and I ask a lot of basic questions. How does it work? What do you do with my money? I'm careful not to use phrases like tax loss harvesting or dollar cost averaging or even compound interest. Instead, I ask things like, can you guys help with taxes? We were on a phone call, but I could almost feel their eyes lighting up as they eagerly told me all the complicated ways that they could save me money on taxes, when in reality, there are relatively few tax loopholes for the wealthy. Then, in their beautiful accents, they say something that sounds innocuous, but is actually extremely revealing. We don't try to match the market. We focus on asset preservation. Did you catch that? What they really mean is, our investment returns will be below what you could get from a cheap Vanguard fund. In plain English, you can buy salt for a dollar. We'll give you worse salt and charge you two dollars, but we'll deliver it on a beautiful leather tray every six months. At this point, I'm laughing out loud. I hit mute on the phone so I can keep up the charade. They never ask about my goals, such as, why would a guy in his 30s, early in his career, be focused on wealth preservation instead of growth? More important, how much do their services cost? I innocently ask about fees. Now, at this point, I truly can't stop smiling because I know what's about to happen. Oh my God, I literally can't wait. This is the best part. Oh my God, the fees. When I ask how much it costs, their tone changes to dismissive. If you've ever hung around rich people talking about how much something costs, you know what I mean. This is what they said. Well, the investment fee is a nominal 1%, but we're here to focus on the long-term relationship of getting your finances, dot, dot, dot. Did you catch that? First, they glossed over the fee. The fee is a nominal 1%. 1%? Who cares about that? Second, notice that they quickly redirected the conversation back to comfortable words, like long-term relationship that their target client would actually want to hear. Why? Well, here's why. By the way, if I recall, the fee was actually somewhere between 1% and 2%. Just to be conservative, let's call it 1%. 1% doesn't sound that bad, right? Did you know that over time, a 1% fee can reduce your returns by around 30%? No, of course you didn't. Nobody does. That means if I invested $100,000 with them, their fees would reduce my $2.1 million to $1.5 million. And guess who gets that money? Not me. They do. All for one phone call. No thanks. I prefer to keep my money for myself. 
the average person genuinely does not understand how crushing these fees are because the math is extremely counterintuitive. Wall Street has engineered it to be opaque. 1% doesn't seem like a lot, but in actuality, it is gargantuan. Investing on my own, I could get better returns and pay less. Want to play a fun game? Call your parents up and ask them what they pay in investment fees. They don't know, I guarantee you that. And if they found out what it actually cost them, they would be depressed. On second thought, don't do this. 1% can cost you 28% of your returns. A 2% fee can cost you 63% of your returns. These numbers are unreal, but they are correct. It's why Wall Street is so rich. It's also why I insist you learn this for yourself and why I get so mad when Wall Street rips off individual investors. If you are listening to this and you're paying over 1% in fees, I am going to kill you. Get smart. You should ideally be paying 0.1% to 0.3%. Think about that. Think about the hundreds of thousands of dollars, even millions, that you can keep instead of paying some wealth manager. You might pay someone to mow your lawn, maybe clean your apartment, but your money is different. Fees compound. The good news is that you're listening to this book now. If you can breathe oxygen and understand English, this book will make you a lot of money, more than you could possibly imagine compared to letting it sit in a savings account. So, back to the advisors. In retrospect, it would have been awesome if I just dropped a super technical question on them, something about Black Shoals or foreign currency exchange, and then said, well, talk to you guys later. Unfortunately, I really suck at coming up with comebacks on the spot. So here are the takeaways from this story. Number one, I love pretending I know nothing about money with so-called professional advisors. This was one of the best days of my life. Number two, the vast majority of you do not need a wealth manager or even a financial advisor. You've already got this book. Listen to it. Use it. Living a rich life is not that hard if you follow advice that works for everyone. Number three, wealth managers know they cannot beat the market, so they try to focus on other ways they can add value, such as anyone can make money in a bull market. We'll help you when the market shifts. And we can advise on taxes, wills, and trusts and insurance. All of those are legit, but none of them requires you to pay a commission-based advisor. If you get skittish when the market goes down, I think the better answer is to develop the skills to stay resilient and focused during a market downturn yourself. Don't make decisions out of fear. Trust in yourself and your financial system. Number four, once you have seven figures in assets or complex transactions involving kids or retirement or taxes, Maybe then you've earned the right to consider advanced advice. Hire a fee-only financial advisor for a few hours or see my website for my advanced course on personal finance. So you really think you need a financial advisor. If you really want to look into hiring a financial advisor, here's an introductory email that you can adapt and send. Hi, Mike. I'm looking for a fee-only financial planner, and I found you on napfa.org. A little bit about me. I have $10,000 in total assets, $3,000 in a Roth IRA, which is uninvested, $3,000 in a 401k, and $4,000 in cash. I'm looking for investments that will maximize long-term returns while minimizing costs. 
If you think you can help me, I'd like to meet for half an hour and ask you some specific questions. I'd also like to hear how you've worked with similar people with similar goals. Would next Friday 2-6 at 2 p.m. work? Alternatively, Monday 2-9 is wide open for me. Thanks, Ramit. For your 30-minute meeting, which shouldn't cost you anything, you'll want to come prepared with questions. There are hundreds of sample questions available online. You can just search for financial advisor questions, but at the very least, ask these three. First, are you a fiduciary? How do you make money? Is it through commission or strictly fee only? Are there any other fees? What you're looking for is a fee-only advisor who's a fiduciary, meaning they put your financial interests first. Any response to this question other than a clear yes is an instant no hire. Second, have you worked with people in similar situations? What general solutions did you recommend? Then get references and call them. Third, what's your working style? Do we talk regularly or do I work with an assistant? You want to know what to expect in the first 30, 60, and 90 days. And that's how you do it. Pundits worth reading. Here are three money columnists and one forum that I love. Morgan Housel writes one of the most interesting blogs on psychology and money out there. Read his post to understand why you do what you do and why the herd does what it does. Collaborativefund.com slash blog. Dan Solon, author of a number of great investing books, writes a terrific newsletter where he names names and calls out the BS of the investing industry. Here are a few topics he's tackled. Cracks in the robo-advisor facade. Active fund managers are losers. And find the courage to be different. DanielSolin.com Ron Lieber writes the Your Money column for the New York Times. I love the variety of topics he tackles, and he's always pro-consumer. RonLieber.com Finally, I love the Bogleheads Forum, where you can find good investing advice. They'll steer you clear of scams and fads and refocus you on low-cost, long-term investing. Bogleheads.com slash forum. Active versus passive management. Please know that even with all this doom and gloom about professional investor performance, I'm not in any way saying that investing is a waste of money. You just have to know where to invest. Mutual funds, which are simply collections of different investments, like stocks or bonds, are often considered the simplest and best way for most people to invest. But as we've seen, fund managers fail to beat the market 75% of the time, and it can be hard to tell which funds will actually perform over the long term. And no matter how good a mutual fund is, the returns are hampered by the large fees they charge. Sure, there are some low-cost mutual funds, but because of the way they compensate their portfolio managers and employees, it's virtually impossible for them to compete with the low costs of passively managed index funds, which I'll talk about in a minute. When it comes to investing, as discussed, fees are a huge drag on your return. This is a little counterintuitive since we're used to paying for service, like our gym membership or admission to Disneyland. If we're getting something out of it, we should pay a fair price, right? The key is fair, and many of the financial experts we turn to for guidance make an effort to squeeze every last cent out of us. You see, mutual funds use something called active management. This means a portfolio manager actively tries to pick the best stocks and give you the best return. 
sounds good, right? But even with all the fancy analysts and technology they employ, portfolio managers still make fundamentally human mistakes, like selling too quickly, trading too much, and making rash guesses. These fund managers trade frequently so they can show short-term results to their shareholders and prove they're doing something, anything, to earn your money. Not only do they usually fail to beat the market, but they charge a fee to do this. Mutual funds typically charge 1% to 2% of assets managed each year. This percentage is known as a fund's expense ratio. In other words, with a 2% expense ratio and a $10,000 portfolio, you'd pay $200 per year in fees. Some funds even tack on additional sales charges or loads to the purchase price, which is a front-end load, or sales price, which is a back-end load of the fund. These are just some of the tricky ways that mutual fund managers make money whether they perform or not. 2% doesn't sound like much until you compare it with the alternative, passive management. This is how index funds, which are a cousin of mutual funds, are run. These funds work by replacing portfolio managers with computers. The computers don't attempt to find the hottest stock. They simply and methodically pick the same stocks that an index holds. For example, the 500 stocks in the S&P 500, and they attempt to match the market. By the way, an index is a way to measure part of the stock market. For example, the NASDAQ index represents certain technology stocks, while the S&P 500 represents 500 large U.S. stocks. There are international indexes and even retail indexes. Most index funds stay close to the market or to the segment of the market they represent. Just as the stock market may fall 10% one year and gain 18% the next year, index funds will rise and fall with the indexes they track. The big difference is in the fees. Index funds have way lower fees than mutual funds because there's no expensive staff to pay. Vanguard's S&P 500 index fund, for example, has an expense ratio of 0.14%. Remember, there are all kinds of index funds. There's international funds, healthcare funds, small cap funds. There are even funds that match the overall U.S. stock market, which means that if the market goes down, these index funds will go down. But over the long term, the overall stock market has consistently returned about 8% after inflation. Let's look at the performance from two sides, the downside, fees, and the upside, returns. First, let's compare the fees for a passively managed fund with those for an actively managed fund. Let's assume that you're investing $100 a month and that you're getting an 8% return over the long term. I want to compare the passively managed index fund with a 0.14% expense ratio with an actively managed mutual fund that has a 1% expense ratio. After five years, here's what would happen. With a passively managed index fund, you'd have $7,320. With an actively managed mutual fund, you'd have $7,159. The difference is about $161.64. Doesn't seem like that big of a deal over five years. Well, let's fast forward now. Instead of five years, let's talk about what happens at 25 years. With a passively managed index fund, your return 
would equal $92,967. But with an actively managed mutual fund, remember with that 1% expense ratio, you have $81,007. What's the difference? With the lower cost index fund, you have $11,959 more. All for doing nothing. Now let me show you how these numbers change at higher levels. Remember, what seems like a small fee actually turns into a huge drag on your performance. This time, let's assume you put $5,000 into an account and you add $1,000 a month, same 8% return. After five years, you save $1,925 with the lower cost index fund. And after 25 years, guess how much you'll save with the lower cost index fund? Well, you'll save $126,418.53. Guess where that money goes? Right in your pocket. John Bogle, the Vanguard founder, once shared a shocking example with PBS documentary series Frontline. Let's assume you and your friend Michelle each invested in funds with identical performance over 50 years. The only difference is that you paid 2% lower fees than she did. So your investment returned 7% while hers returned 5%. What would the difference be? Any guesses? On the surface, 2% in fees doesn't seem like much. It's natural to guess that your returns might differ by 2% or even 5%. But the math of compounding will shock you. Mr. Bogle said, assuming a 50-year horizon, the second portfolio would have lost 63% of its potential returns to fees. Think about that. A simple 2% in fees can cost you over half of your investment returns. Or that 1%. Remember that 1% fee? Can't be that much, right? For the same 50-year time period, that fee will cost you 39% of your returns. Oh, I know, I know. Maybe 50 years is too long to think about. Why don't we try 35 years? What would a 1% fee cost you? Try a 28% reduction in your retirement returns, according to the Department of Labor. This is why I'm so fanatical about reducing fees. In investing, fees are your enemy. If your decision was determined by fees alone, index funds would obviously be the clear choice. But let's also consider another important factor, returns. Despite my hammering home the fact that mutual funds fail to beat the market 75% of the time, I will say that they do occasionally provide great returns. In some years, some mutual funds do extraordinarily well, and they far outperform index funds. In a good year, for example, a fund focused on Indian stocks might return 70%. But one or two years of great performance only gets you so far. What you really want is solid, long-term returns. So if you're thinking about using a broker or actively managed fund, call them and ask a simple point-blank question. What were your after-tax, after-fee returns for the last 10, 15, and 20 years? Yes, their response must include all fees and taxes. Yes, the return period must be at least 10 years because the last five years of any time period are too volatile to matter. And yes, I promise that they will not give you a straight answer because that would be admitting that they didn't beat the market consistently. 
it is that hard to do. So, the safe assumption is that actively managed funds will too often fail to beat or even match the market. In other words, if the market returns 8%, actively managed funds won't return at least 8% more than three-fourths of the time. In addition, when you combine that with their high expense ratios, actively managed funds have to outperform cheaper, passively managed funds by at least 1% to 2% just to break even with them. And that simply doesn't happen. In the book called The Smartest Investment Book You'll Ever Read, Daniel Solon cites a study conducted by Professor Edward S. O'Neill from the Babcock Graduate School of Management, now called the Wake Forest School of Business. O'Neill tracked funds whose sole purpose was to beat the market. What he discovered was that from 1993 through 1998, less than half of these actively managed funds beat the market. And from 1998 through 2003, only 8% beat the market. But wait, there's more. When he looked at the number of funds that beat the market in both time periods, the results were, as he put it, sad indeed. The number of funds that beat the market in both periods was a whopping 10, or only 2% of all large-cap funds. Investors, both individual and institutional, and particularly 401k plans, would be far better served by investing in passive or passively managed funds than in trying to pick more expensive, active managers who purport to be able to beat the markets. Bottom line, there's no reason to pay exorbitant fees for active management when you could do better for cheaper on your own. Yet you and I both know that money isn't purely rational, even listening to the clear math here. It's emotional. So once and for all, let's tackle the invisible money scripts that keep people believing that active investment is worth it. Then we can start investing. Invisible scripts about financial advisors. I don't know, I just want to pay someone to take it off my hands. What it means. It's natural to be intimidated by all the jargon and confusing advice. But this is your money. Learning the fundamentals will be the single most profitable decision you've ever made. There's a famous quote from self-development legend Jim Rohn, who says, Don't wish it was easier. Wish you were better. Don't wish for less problems. Wish for more skills. Don't wish for someone to hold your hand like you're a four-year-old, skipping rope and chewing bubblegum. Wish to build the discipline of long-term investment, like an adult. Others have done it, and you can too. Invisible script. I like him. He's really trustworthy. Also, my dad used to use him. What it means. Listen, I like my local bagel guy. Does that mean I should invest with him? No! Our tendency to conflate likable with trustworthy is absolutely amazing. One great study at the University of Chicago demonstrated this. The title of the study was, U.S. doctors are judged more on bedside manner than effectiveness of care. Your advisor might be likable. He might be funny and thoughtful. But when it comes to your money, focus on results. Invisible script. I'm afraid of losing money. What it means. Good. Then you should know that every dollar you're paying to an advisor via fees is a dollar you could have invested. For example, a 1% fee can reduce your returns by around 30%. Invisible script. My guy's beaten the market for the last four years. What it means. Maybe he has. 
But once you factor in all the fees and all the taxes, which naturally he will obscure, maybe he really hasn't. As research shows, just because someone is hot now doesn't mean they will be in the future. Sung Woo Kim, who's 28, wrote, I signed up for this retirement fund that charged a lot for management, and now I have to put money in every month for five years to get it out. At the time, I was convinced by the financial advisor's demeanor and fancy words. I'm debating whether I should get the money out with a $1,000 loss for the cancellation fees. I feel like such an idiot for signing up for a dumb fund with a crazy fee like this. Lucinda B., 33 years old, wrote, Just before I got married, I decided to speak to a financial advisor. I wanted to get a good picture of my position before I merged my financial life with my husband's. His fee wasn't ridiculous compared to the top of the market, but his advice certainly was. Scaring me into buying managed products with ongoing fees that I didn't need. It made my financial position seem more complex than it actually was, and I still had no idea of what to do. While on honeymoon, I read I Will Teach You To Be Rich for the first time, and when I got back, I reversed most of the decisions the financial advisor had made. Now that you've listened to the myth of expertise, it's time to see exactly how you can invest your own money to get better returns for lower cost. In the next chapter, I'll teach you everything you need to know about investing, and we'll cover all the technical aspects of selecting and automating your investments. Let's do this. By the way, if you're looking for action steps, keep listening. This chapter has been strictly informational, but in the next section, you'll make some major decisions.